Kids are dismissed for kids' praise, and uh, the rest, rest of you, if you want to open your Bibles or apps to Revelation, I'll be flipping through, looking at a few examples. Um, well, we live in a very politically divided world, obviously. It's a mess, um, and it's getting more and more divided. 50-50, it seems, in, in the country here. And because of that, it makes us want to either bunker down and, and hide from it all, or it makes us want, we're tempted maybe to the other extreme and go join the militia or something and yeah make a difference that way um or our country is becoming a moral uh decadent it's becoming morally decadent and we're afraid for our future especially for our children and grandchildren if it's this messed up now and if the trajectory continues then oh man what a world that they will inherit well how we are to live in the midst of spiritual opposition that we're encountering is precisely why revelation was given to the church again it's not a crystal ball it's not a prophecy about some future that only pertains to the last seven years of existence like many people leave but it was as pertinent to the early christians as it is to us and everyone in between you know, the early Christians were encountering Rome, the Roman Empire. They are breathing down their necks and, and causing great disturbance, and, uh, and it was a scary time to live. And yet, revelation was given to them to give them hope. Greg Glory says, Some Christians to find that life as a follower of Jesus is not a cakewalk, but it's a conflict. It's not a playground, but it's a battleground. Ephesians 6, we're told, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood or politicians or against rulers, uh, uh, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's our real enemy. Remember, Jesus died for even our greatest political enemy. He's not the enemy or she's not the enemy of our heavenly father. These rulers of opposition in Revelation are described as the dragon, who is a supernatural source of opposition, namely Satan, or the great harlot, or Babylon, which would be the worldly powers and structures that uh, oppose God and God's ways, or thirdly, the beast or the sea monster, the propaganda, propaganda mouthpiece of the worldly powers, could be the Antichrist, or as First John says, many Antichrists. In fact, did you know that in Revelation, the word Antichrist is never used? It only comes in First John in the entire Bible, the word Antichrist. It's referred to as beast or sea monster. And as believers in Christ, how are we to respond to these forces of opposition? How are we to live in the midst of them? And that's what Revelation is about. Last week... We looked at how we're called to oppose these oppositions uh, by the power of the Lamb, by lives of sacrificial service, by loving the enemy, etc., etc. In Revelation, we looked at the title of Lamb occurs 28 times, and that's not by accident. According to apocalyptic literature, every number means something in a book like Revelation. And this isn't a new thought. This was the thought 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. when it, this genre was at its heyday. 
We need to understand that. 28 means seven times four. Seven is the perfection, number for perfection and completion, and four is a number that's repeated, symbolizing the world, the four corners of the world, if you will. Revelation 5, then, the angel told John that the line of the tribe of Judah would open the scrolls. So John heard this from the angel. This line of the tribe of Judah is going to open the scroll. But then he looked and he saw a different sight. He saw the lamb standing at the center of the heavenly throne, reigning in all power and authority. Not just a lamb, but the slain lamb. We know how Christ defeated Satan at the cross without even lifting a finger. We're told throughout Scripture, in Colossians 2, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the sword. No, by the cross. Hebrews 2. Through his death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. How did he destroy death? Well, the devil put Jesus on the cross because he hated Christ. He tried to eliminate his life in the entire 33 years of Christ's life. And he did so by committing murder. But when he committed murder against an innocent man, a sinless man, he himself destroyed himself because he forfeited all of his life, all of his rights, because anyone who kills and murders an innocent man is subject to the death penalty. In Satan's desperate effort, to break the oneness between Jesus and his heavenly father, he slew an innocent man, and he was not legally able to do that, thus committing murder, and he brought on the sentence of his own death. The evil that he thrust upon Jesus, he and his demonic force, that evil came right back at them and destroyed them. Jesus, the Lamb of God, won the decisive battle against Satan by way of the cross not by way of force or violence. His victory was attained at the cross. In the same way, the early believers would have heard this Revelation 5, they would have heard it, and they would have thought that the line of the tribe of Judah was going to come and devour the enemies, devour the evil Roman Empire, and they could assume their place on the throne in, in Jerusalem. But instead, they saw the slain lamb, and they said, this is how you are to live, by the Lamb of God. Not according to the worldly weapons of Babylon or the power structures, but by the word of their testimony in sacrificial, the Lamb of God. Revelation 12 is probably the best verse to sum up the purpose. Revelation 12, they triumphed over him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Well, this is how we too defeat Satan. Jesus said, if you live by the sword, then you'll die by the sword. Don't do that. Put down your sword. Galatians 2, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Instead, Christ lives through me. It's the way of the Lamb. So let's turn our attention to a few other examples in Revelation instructing us how to battle against the satanic trilogy of the dragon, the beast, and Babylon. 
And regardless of how you interpret Revelation, by the way, it's not my goal during this series to try to convince you to think differently about how things will play out at the end. I could care less what you think about that. Um, although I, I believe I'm right. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and I too will pray for your discernment. No. I will go to my deathbed allowing you to be wrong. Okay, so 144,000 is the next image we're going to look at. Revelation 7, as I mentioned, uh, every number has symbolic meaning. Chapter 7, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. There's the four corners of the earth, right? Number 4, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on the tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And then in verse 5 through 8 we read, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed, and then it lists all the other tribes of Israel, adding up to 144,000, 12,000 per tribe. Now, some would interpret this number in Revelation, most do interpret this number as a literal number of Jews who are left behind after the church is raptured, and they're left on earth to proclaim the good news to give the Gentiles a second chance. Others view this group this number 144,000 symbolically as God's army of believers proclaiming the good news in the midst of spiritual warfare namely us and every believer who's lived in the past present future why do some believe the 144,000 are believers and not just the literal Jews well for these reasons first of all as I mentioned numbers have symbols are symbolic. For example, the number seven means perfect or complete. The number six means incomplete or you missed the mark. It means um, fallenness. It means sinful. Uh, so the number 666 then therefore would be the trinity of evil. Don't, don't receive the mark of the beast. 666, which is the epitome of worldliness or evil. Um, and especially don't get the number of the beast on your hand or forehead. Well, what does that mean? Well, it could mean a literal chip in your hand or forehead like many propose, or it simply could mean what you think about and what you do, don't let that reflect um, your six, your commitment to six, to your sinfulness, your fallenness, your human nature. Three and a half is a number that is very short. The number 10 is a short period of time. The number of thousand is a long period of time or, or a large distance. Like God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, wonder what thousand hills he meant. Or um, God will bless you to the thousand generations. Well, what happens a thousand and one generation? Then God won't bless you. And so numbers are symbolic according to apocalyptic literature. So this number 24 uh, is another one. We, we mentioned 24 meaning 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. Add them together, you get 24, the number 24 who are worshiping in heaven, namely all people from beginning to end throughout the eras are worshiping God. 
And so you get the number 12 times 12 times 1,000 in 144,000. Numbers are symbolic and repetitive. That's why I believe this is a symbolic number. 12 times 12, the tribes of Israel, the apostles, rep representing everyone, times 1,000, which means a very long time or a large group of people. 144,000, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses think it's a literal 144,000. I hope you're in, uh, but many don't as Christians. We believe that it's a very large number of believers. This list of Israelite tribes cannot be complete either as Ephraim and Dan are missing from this list in Revelation. Dan because committed blasphemy and idolatry. I'm not sure why Ephraim is missing. But Ephraim would have been included under Joseph, but it said Joseph is a tribe of 12,000. Well, Joseph wasn't a tribe unless you split it between Manasseh and Ephraim. And therefore, Ephraim is missing, or Manasseh, one or the other, in this list. And then, number, fourthly, Reuben, the eldest son, would have been listed first in this. But he, he's not listed, but instead Judah is listed. Why is Judah listed first? He should have been listed fourth, according to his age. Again, the early believers would have expected the lion from the tribe of where? Judah, right. In Revelation 5 again, when John heard of the lion of the tribe of Judah from the angel, the Messiah was to come and devour the enemies. That's what they thought. You know, we're going to use military force and conquer Rome. But when John looked, he saw the slain lamb on the throne. So he's, re he's reiterating this theme again. The same pattern from hearing and then seeing is found in Revelation 7 as well. In Revelation 7, 4, I heard the number of those who were sealed, the 144,000 of the tribes of Israel. He heard about them. But then when he looked, he saw something much greater than what he expected. In verse 9, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Again, the Old Testament Jews would have expected a mighty uprising of Jews to join them with the Messiah to battle force against the enemies. But John's eyes were opened to a much complete picture of Christ's victorious church. A great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before not the lion, but the lamb. The army of God is much greater than what John would have anticipated or what the early church would have anticipated. The small churches would have been insecure. They would have had an inferiority complex compared to mighty Roman Empire. And by the way, there weren't just seven churches in chapter 7 or 2 and 3. In Ephesus alone, there were more than seven churches. But there were seven meaning complete again that that is spoken of in 2 and 3 of Revelation. But these small churches would have been intimidated and helpless and outnumbered and inferior and feeling very alone, and they would have needed hope. And so God gave them this vision. Christ gave them this vision. Hey, your army is much grander than what you think. It's people from every tribe, every nation, way beyond your comp uh, comprehension. And how are they to win their victory? Again, not by the worldly strategy of a sword, but through worship. Worship of the lamb, lamb acknowledging their dependence on Jesus. We read in verse 9, 
They're wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. Palm branches. We think of Hosanna. We think of Palm Sunday. Worship, prayer, dependence, celebration. And they were singing, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The palm branches were in their hands representing prayer, praise, and worship. But this would have not just included worship on Sunday mornings or Saturdays. It would include a worship as a lifestyle. As Keith Green would sing, make my life a prayer to you. I want to do what you, whatever. Or Romans 12, therefore I urge you, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is holy and pleasing to God. It is your spiritual worship. Live the sacrificial life. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Verse 13 of chapter 7, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they, and where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. When we offer ourselves as living sacrifices by serving, by refusing to retaliate, then we live triumphantly. We live as overcomers, victorious. Romans 12, 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Again, this is how we defeat the satanic trilogy. And there's no greater way than to give testimony than sacrificial life even to the point of death in fact the word witness or testimony witness in Greek is martura from which we derive the word martyr and I remember well this past week I read on my daily email blog from Voice of the Martyrs another testimony of a 25-year-old Ethiopian who met Christ and his life was forever transformed. He went home to share with his family and his Muslim family rejected him. They took him from imam to imam to imam to get him brainwashed back or to get, to get him to denounce this new Christian faith. And when he refused to do so, his dad said, take him away, arrest him. So they arrested him. And for eight months, he sat shackled in his feet and hands and he was beaten and tortured and not fed and they never changed his clothes and he was cold eight months later they finally couldn't convince him to denounce his faith in Christ and so they just threw him back into his home and his dad says so son have you had a change in mind and he said no dad I haven't he said arrest him take him back to prison but yet his testimonies like this that are leading that are leading to revivals around the world because people are seeing the darkness for what their religion teaches. They're seeing the evil and the oppression and they're seeing freedom in Christ. And they'll say, I don't care what you do to me. I do not care because I am free for the first time in my life and I know where I'm going. You can take my body. I know where my soul is going. And they, I refuse, even as a 25-year-old young man, he refuses to deny Christ. And because of that, we're seeing hundreds of thousands of people come to Christ in revival format around the world. That's the blood, the way of the Lamb. That is a huge, huge testimony to the um, 
reality of Christ. Another image is Armageddon. Armageddon points to the blood and the word again. In Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing up open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him, and no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen and white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the enemies or the nations. So here we see the blood of the Lamb in verse 13. Christ's robe is dipped in blood, symbolic for his death. It wasn't the blood of the um, enemies. It was his own blood. They triumphed, triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. And then by the word of the testimony in verse 13. And his name is the word of God. Verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. They were not dressed for battle. They were dressed for a banquet. They were dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And then we know what this fine linen stands for in verse 8, a few verses earlier. We're told in parentheses, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's saints or God's holy people. In other words, their testimony by their behavior. This was their testimony by their righteous acts, not by their sword, not by their cutting off of the enemy's heads. Ah, let's go get them. In verse 15, coming out of Jesus' mouth is a sharp sword. Man, like this, like, I'm going to get you, man. I'm going to get you. Come on. I'm going to cut your head off. Oh, come on. Who's next? He didn't do that. What does the sharp sword out of his mouth represent? The word of God. The truth. Jesus has already won the battle at the cross in the past. He now wins the battle according to the truth. The only thing Satan has against us is the power of the lie. Otherwise, he's defeated. If he convinces us that he's in control of our lives, then he'll have control of our lives based on a lie. If we live in fear, then we're living according to a lie. He's already been defeated at the cross. Verse six, uh, 15 says, or uh, chapter 2, 16, speaking to the, one of the churches, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. This is how, this is how Satan is defeated, by the truth. Not by military might, not by sword, not by overcoming governments and Babylons and Romans. And this battle is for the truth versus the lie. The day of judgment will be a time of accountability when the veil is pulled back and all will see God's holiness, Christ's holiness, as he comes back for the final time and will see his purity, his light, his holiness, and it will reveal all that is dark within us. Only that which is of him, the righteousness that we have because of Christ, will sustain this. The rest will be washed away forever it'll be destroyed into darkness it'll, it'll be sent into eternal separation in hell it'll be gone for those who don't know Christ they have no righteousness within them and so all that will be revealed will be nothing left 
nothing will be salvaged. All will be snuffed out. Eternal separation into death, darkness, and hell. It's the same way that when the Israelites, if they were to go up to the Mount Sinai when Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments, if they would have even touched the edge of the mountain, they would have died. Or if they went into the temple, and, and if they would have said, I, I'm going to run behind the Holy of Holy Curtain just to see what's back there. I'm sick and tired. And, and if you were to do that, you'd fall dead on the spot because you're in the holiness of God's presence. This is God's judgment. This is his wrath. When he comes back, he simply has to reveal himself, and that will make all the difference in the world as to whether we go to eternal life or eternal separation. On the surface, the battle of Armageddon looks like a bloody massacre, but the definitive battle has taken, been, taken place already at the cross, and the only future battle is the battle of truth. Namely, will you trust in the power of the Lamb of God, the slain Lamb? Will you believe in him? Or will you continue to wage your battles trusting in the power of Babylon, the power of the world? If you're unconvinced, we'll look at one more example, the two witnesses in Revelation 11. These two witnesses are symbolic for the church proclaiming a warning of upcoming judgment to the world. Revelation 11 I will appoint two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Why two witnesses? Because we're told in scripture one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of crime or offense. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Again, the word of their testimony Notice these witnesses were in sackcloth, which was their message, their testimony included repentance. Repent. It was also an attitude of repentance. Verses 7 through 11, they were killed by Satan, the beast. They were laid in the streets and their, where their Lord was crucified and they were raised back to life and they ascended into heaven before their enemies. Again, another picture of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension in this symbol. This is the message that these two witnesses proclaim, a message of repentance, a message of his death, resurrection, and ascension. How are we to live victoriously over our opposition? A life of sacrificial servanthood, the blood of the Lamb, and by being faithful proclaimers of repentance and God's good news, the word of our testimony. I saw Nikki Cruz's testimony like three weeks ago on TV in Washington, D.C. during the day of prayer. Nikki Cruz was a hero of mine when I was a kid. He was a New York City gang, gang member, and uh, you, you might have seen the movie Cross and the Switchblade. David Wilkerson was this nerdy preacher guy who went into the streets with, uh, through Ministry of Teen Challenge and reached out to gang members. One time he went to the Mau Mau's, Nikki Cruz's gang. He was the leader. He went up to Nikki Cruz and said, Jesus loves you, Nikki. And, and Nikki Cruz, Cruz said, get out of my face, man. I'm gonna, he pulled out a knife. I'm going to cut you in a thousand pieces. He said, you can cut me in a thousand pieces, Nikki, and all those pieces will be crying out, Jesus loves you. And so Nikki hated David Wilkerson. And he and his, his gang stormed a revival one night in a church. They were coming, they were walked into this revival just to create chaos 
and most of them did, but Nicky Cruz found himself at the altar. He was arrested by the Holy Spirit, and he gave his life to Christ. It was through the power of the blood of the Lamb that Nicky Cruz was transformed. Not by force, not by manipulation, not by coercion, not by the weapons of this world, but by the blood of the Lamb and the word of testimony. What Revelation calls us to through images and symbols is a lifestyle that we're taught throughout the rest of the New Testament. I just took one book, just to give you a little example. Just one book, I'll give you a few verses and we'll be done. 1 Peter 4.12 This is the blood of the Lamb. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, even right now. As though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, then you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and God rests on you. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to retaliate. No, it says continue to do good. That's living according to the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of your good works. That's how you come against opposition. Continue to do good. And then 1 Peter 2.9, the word of your testimony. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful life. That's your job description. Declare his praises. Chapter 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their evil desires, and they will say, where's this coming that he promised? Verse 9, well, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's our job description. This is how we defeat the powers of darkness. It's not God's will that anyone perish, but all come to repentance. That is our sole responsibility as children of God. Not to retaliate, not to exchange verbal words of anger with people via internet, Facebook, or whatnot. When we do that, we're fighting according to the worldly principles of Babylon. We're playing right into Satan's palm. We're to live according to the Lamb of God who was slain for us. And we're to share testimony of his sufficiency. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, I thank you for my brothers and sisters watching online and those who are able to gather today. I thank you, Lord, for the good news of this book of Revelation. Lord, whether people agree with this interpretation or not is beside the point. I do know that it is biblical, but whether it plays out the way that I believe, I don't know, God. No one really knows for sure. And that's okay, but Lord, we can all agree that you are the Lamb of God who died for us, who rose again, and who lives through us. Lord, may we have your attitude, may we have your demeanor, and may you change the world by your mighty church, living by the power of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Amen.